So we'll, we'll see how this goes. Uh, so a uh, few months ago, uh, Cliff asked me if I would prepare a sermon on worship. Um, I think that's because he thought it was probably the only topic I couldn't screw up. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if he's right or not. Uh, Lord willing, I won't. We're going to order our, our service a little bit differently today, obviously. Uh, we thought it would make sense after doing a sermon about worship to have an immediate opportunity to have application for that. So if you hold on tight, you will have chance for a full set. We're not trying to rob you of, of your music. I see some people getting a little antsy there. Uh, if you pull out your notes uh, from your bulletin, you'll see uh, Dina did exactly what I asked her to do. So we've got what is worship, what does it look like, worship within the corporate Sunday service, worship in everyday life, worship within redemptive history. Um, this was the plan. And as I said about doing this, the first bullet became 6,400 words and 40 minutes long. So, uh, again, if I don't screw this up, maybe Cliff will let me do a part two at some point. Not w- next week, I'll, I'll need more time to prep than that. So, I grew up in the hills, uh, northeast of Sacramento. If you don't know what Sacramento is, it's the capital of California. I know a lot of people down here in Southern California think that L.A. is, but that's inaccurate. Um, so, when I turned uh, 14... I began to want more of this thing called money, right? And if you want to make money as a 14-year-old in the hills, you mow lawns. Now, it sounds similar to what kids in the city do, right? You want more money, you go out and mow some lawns. Well, uh, in the hills, lawns are called acres of knee-high weeds on a 45-degree slope, uh, and your lawnmower is called a weed eater. I was lucky enough to begin my entrepreneurship at the same time that one of our close female uh, friends was going to college, so I could inherit this girl's regular clients. Um, and in the hills, we're pretty sexist. Let me just tell you that right, right now, ladies, so I apologize for the way I used to think. But I was pretty excited, right, to think how easily my bosses would be pleased because obviously I could do a man's job better than some girl, right? Again, I apologize, ladies. That's, that's the way I was about to think. Well, this girl happened to be a star athlete in our high school, and she also happened to have a professional-grade weed eater with a metal blade, the kind of thing that that we drool about up there in the hills. So when I got my first job, uh, I worked about eight hours using my family's consumer-grade weed eater, and I finally finished, right? So I knocked proudly on, on the client's front door, ready to collect my cash, you know. So at the time, minimum wage is like 6 bucks an hour. He's promising me 10 bucks an hour, obviously under the table, no taxes, right? So we're talking about serious bank here, right? Well, he opens the door, he walks outside, surveys the landscape of what I've done, and says, well, it doesn't look as good as when the girl did it. And she used to finish in two hours. So I'll pay you $5 an hour, next month, or I don't want you back. It was the first, uh, and, and I think last job I was ever uh, fired from. I was shocked, right? I went away thinking, what does this guy want from me? What is the standard here? I, I'd always understood uh, that life was about giving your best, and as long as you give your best, everything will go fine. I'd indeed given my best in this job, but the quality of equipment I was using and my lack of experience made it impossible for me to measure up to the standard required. I think in 2012, 
uh, especially within postmodernism at its pinnacle and self-esteem completely overvalued in our context. We've created a culture in which our standards are lower to be relative to our individual abilities. Yet in many areas of human life, and more importantly, in our relationship to God, our habits have lied to us about the absolute truth of unchanging standards in the universe. So today, as we look at what is expected in worship, I want us to begin with this moral from the story we just heard. That the best we have to offer is going to hurt some feelings. It may not be enough. At which point we obviously have to ask, what is enough? So our sermon is titled, What Do You Want From Me, God? The Standard for Worship. So what is worship? I think when you go about searching the Bible for a standard or an expectation or a definition of the act of worship, the best place to begin is Romans 12.1. I'm sure many of us are well familiar with it. Uh, but we may gloss over some of the terms that are incredibly important for understanding the historical scope of the statement being made here. Let's read this together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This, right, this is your spiritual worship. I think the answer to the question, what does God want from me, is right there in that verse. Uh, But some of the language makes it difficult to unpack what this actually means in our daily lives. We look at this in 2012, and maybe some people are even a little bit weirded out by some of the terminology. In order to worship God, we need to sacrifice our bodies. This sounds like some sort of ancient Mayan ritual, like the sacrificing of virgins or one of uh, those kind of things to one of their sadistic gods. Yet the message, the message within this specific word choice would have been clear to the Jews to whom Paul was speaking. What Old Testament, was he, what Old Testament practice was he obviously alluding to here? The living sacrifices. The lamb, right? Animal sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, God had set up a covenant with his people for how to at least symbolically be acceptable, be holy before God. And a huge part of that covenant was the sacrificing of animals. As Hebrews 9.22 later clarifies, without blood being shed, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness is impossible. Not only was this part of God's covenant with the Hebrews, but animal sacrifices were fairly common amongst cultures at the time, with the idea being that they needed some sort of propitiation, right, to appease the offended deity. Right now, a propitiation, that's a big word. It just means you've done something to make someone of great authority upset, and you want to make him happy again. So you have to do whatever you want to do to get that done. So at first glance, the Old Testament God can look just like every other God at that time in the ancient world. Let's check out a few passages to see if what he wants is the same as other gods. We'd be in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. I'm sure you guys have spent so much time in Leviticus, right? Riveting stuff. Uh, so let's check this out. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. 
If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. We see that word again. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now it's where it gets especially into the uh, relevant to the 2012 crowd, right? Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn, it, uh, burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Something about this process is pleasing. Now, the God, he, the God of the Bible seems pretty uh, picky here, right? I mean, those are some pretty graphic details. We don't hear too many sermons on that in 2012. And these rules for sacrifices go on and on. They can be found all the way into the next book, Numbers. And they all involve this idea of creating a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Every offense against him has his own prescribed kind of remedy, if you will, in pursuit of holiness before God. So we can safely conclude, right, that God, the God of the Old Testament, is just like every other God. What a disappointment, right? I mean, advocates of Christianity are always claiming that this is about a relationship, not a typical religious ritual. But this sounds like every other works-based, do this, not that, checklist, organized religion. Well, you could come to that conclusion uh, if you read these things out of context, which many Jews, like many people within church buildings today, have a tendency to do. But if you read the Bible in its entirety, you'll see another twist, which completely sets the God of the Bible apart. And at first, actually, makes God look even more crazy. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. So as we look at verses 11 through 17, we'll see what had to make some of the Israelites scratch their heads in complete confusion, right? So after generations and generations of Israelites had followed the Levitical law exactly as physically required, God says to Israel, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And if you stop there and you read these passages we just looked at without looking at the Bible as a whole, at the Old Testament as a whole, God looks like he has multiple personalities or something. 
I can just imagine the look on the faces of some of the Israelites' faces when Isaiah delivered this message. Picture them. Many of them have had this religion passed on generations and generations prior. This culture, this tradition, this list of things you're supposed to do. First, yes, to maintain your cultural identity and commonality with your family and friends, but also to keep this God off your back, to be in good standing with him. So Isaiah brings this message to the people, and I can just see some of them reflecting on this over the next few days. So wait, we're, we're not supposed to kill the bulls anymore? I thought, I thought God liked it when we killed the bulls. Pretty sure he told us in the scroll of Numbers we're supposed to kill bulls. Now what am I supposed to do with all these good-looking bulls I've been storing up for when I sin? And the guy next to him is like, I, I know, man, I had this pretty nice business going on. People had been sinning and they didn't have a sheep that, would, that was flawless. I'd, I'd sell them one so they could go sacrifice it. Now I'm really not sure what I'm supposed to do with my can of blemish be gone. And they can't wrap their heads around it, right? Why is this God always changing his mind? What does he want from me? But those of us who've had our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit see that God is not changing his requirements. They're the same they've always been. Let's continue reading in Isaiah to see if we can get a hint at what God has been wanting from his people and what his real problem with their sacrifices is. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. We see that God was expecting more than animal sacrifices to compensate for sins. He was expecting more than ceremonial washings after being physically unclean. He was expecting more than the absence of negative actions. He was expecting the presence of perfect, flawless actions. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. As we're going through all of these passages throughout the Bible today, you must keep the language of Romans 12.1 in the back of your mind. In order for us to bring actions of worship before God, we must perform these actions with holiness. We must be holy. We must be perfect. Worshiping God is no small task. Hopefully I can conquer my cold here today. Uh, those who know me closely know that I have a tendency to think that uh, nothing is difficult. Everything is a small task. Nothing demands consistent and perfect discipline. I like to think that there's a strategy to quickly getting through a learning curve of any system. Uh, and after the initial effort of getting the terminology, the, the techniques, the formulas for the system... I should be able to just kind of coast to greatness. Whether it be my profession of teaching or sports that I once played, uh, such as football or basketball, or starting a a business in an area I know nothing about, I like to think that if I put minimal minimal effort into it, 
I should see maximum results. <coughs> and I think up until about halfway through college, uh, all the evidence seemed to support my theory. I was able to rise up to the, the top 10% of athletes in my high school. I was able to get A's and B's uh, throughout high school and college without much studying. I was handed the leadership role of worship leader at California Baptist University my freshman year uh, without much competition. And as far as I could tell, life was just kind of kind of roll out this red carpet for me and whatever I wanted to do. But situation by situation, life has shown me that human standards are higher than I think. I soon realized I was only good at sports because I was from a town of about 3,000, and there were only about 600 people in my high school. It's quite a shock when the, I find out there's more people in the world than that, and the uh, competition went up a little bit. When I arrived at my English major-specific classes in college, I found other people had... Uh, established this habit called reading. And they completely blew me away with what, what came out of their mouth, right? They would use all, all kinds of two and three syllables in their words. It's pretty intimidating stuff. Two years after I'd led worship at CBU, uh, the School of Music began attracting legitimate musicians. Uh, and I've since seen some of them go on to tour with One Republic, uh, co-write worship songs with Matt Redman, and even in this building, our, our own Cody Noriega, at 20 years old, has exhibited this daily discipline in guitar training, right? To a point where I doubt I could ever dream of catching up to the standard of skill he's set. When I try to make a legalistic checklist of duties to keep my wife happy, our relationship becomes superficial and formulaic. When I try to cut corners in the time I spend with my sons, I see their attitudes begin to harden. And obeying my instructions becomes a burden to them. In my job as a teacher and in my media business, every characteristic flaw I thought I could mask has been exposed. Every weakness I thought would be overlooked has been illuminated. In short, every human system in which I've been involved, at some point I've found there's a standard of quality that's above what I've mastered. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we stop comparing ourselves to those inferior to us in our areas of expertise, but instead compare ourselves to the elite, we fall short. So if we fall short in comparison to great human beings who all are flawed, who can't even take full advantage of their brain activity, what's the latest research say we use about 10, 12%? then how do we compare to an almighty God? So when as sinful humans, we have the audacity to approach an omnipotent, eternal, glorious God, and we attempt to appease his wrath, we attempt to please him, how could we possibly succeed? How could anything we bring before him possibly be good enough? What could we possibly give that would be enough to please the perfect creator of the universe. I'd like you to write that question down for, for your use. What could possibly be good enough to please a perfect creator of the universe? I hope that by the time we are done here today, uh, you will have a confident answer to this question. I hope that the living out of that answer will be the application portion that 
we so typically wait for in a sermon. My hope for our time today here is that we would come to grasp and remember that the standard for worship is absolutely monstrous. We'll begin with this truth. Here's our first key point. True worship demands the believer's entire life. I believe this standard for worship can be discerned in the account of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, all the accounts leading up to Moses. And then if we didn't pick up on these inferences, God makes it quite, through, quite clear through the, the law he gave to Moses. So we read in Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I mean, it doesn't get much more explicit than that, right? So as we said earlier, when you look at the Old Testament law as a whole, and better yet, if you put this verse as kind of the main heading, the main thesis of the law, all the ceremonial laws, the relational laws, the sacrificial laws start to make a lot of sense. So generations after Moses has died, when the Lord says to Israel, I hate you trying to obey the law, what to me is your attempt at obeying the law? God isn't saying this because he, he's crazy and he's decided he doesn't like the law anymore. He's explaining that they've missed the entire point of the law. They don't love God more than everything else. So when Jesus comes centuries later and he asks, what is the greatest commandment of all? It's a no-brainer, right? In fact, interestingly, it's kind of one of the few questions he answers straight up in his entire ministry. He wanted to be completely clear for the mankind throughout history. The standard for holiness, for salvation, for worship has not changed. The standard that we must fulfill in order to be pleasing before God is to love him with everything we have. When Jeff White spoke on financial giving, uh, he used the following story from Jesus' ministry, which I think is applicable again and really to all of our essential questions in life. We want to act like there are so many questions to life, so many different questions. We want to make it complicated. What is the meaning of life? How do I not waste my life? Uh, any fans of the, the YOLO lifestyle? I don't know. If, do we know the YOLO lifestyle in here? You only live once, right? It's, it's big with the kids right now. I don't know. I'm a high school teacher, remember. The questions you're really asking there is how can I grab every ounce of happiness and excitement and pleasure that life has to offer? All these questions are centered around this one core truth of the human experience. And for us religious folk, we're asking the same questions. We just use a little more different vocabulary. How can I be saved? How can I get to heaven? What percentage of my tithe, what percentage of my income should I tithe? How should I go uh, on vacations or should I go on a missions trip? What's God's will for my career? Not that I know anyone who asks that every single day. A man came to Jesus in Matthew 19, 16 through 30. He asked it like this. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to them, which ones? And Jesus said, uh, you know, you shall not murder. 
shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, should love your neighbors yourself. Catch anything strange about this list? I don't think I ever noticed this before. I always thought the list that Jesus was providing here was kind of random, but I never really put together why. Which, one, which ones are you neglecting here? The first three, right? The first three that involve God. He purposely does not bring up the first three commandments, which are placing God first above everything. Jesus knew that this man wanted to approach good deeds like every other, every other human does, from Mormonism to Islam to humanism, which is probably the most popular practice religion of our day, especially in Western society. We all want to make religion a checklist that we can mark off, that we can take pride in. So Jesus sets this man up. Jesus gets this man to make his heart blatantly obvious. We continue, the young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to them, oh, you really want to talk about this now. If you would be perfect, see how the standard went up? Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And one last thing, come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So our key point here, superficially keeping the law is not sufficient for worship. Perfect worship only comes through following Christ. What I appreciate about this passage is that it not only gives us the negative example of the religious type, Christ also makes it clear who truly fulfills God's standard for living. So we read on. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? It's a key question. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, you're right. This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. From these passages, we see that when we're seeking a standard, a minimum expectation for worship, the answer is the same as when we ask, how do we fulfill the commandments? Or how can we be, be okay with a perfect God? Or how much do I tithe and how much do I keep for myself? Or what do I have to do to get into heaven? So our key point, worshiping, worship is submitting our entire being unto God for him to use. 
Worship is declaring that there is nothing else on earth worth doing besides serving him. Worship is declaring that nothing is more beautiful or impressive or intoxicating or mesmerizing or thrilling or jaw-dropping than the majesty of the God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I can remember reading Romans 12, 1 through 2, over and over in my early uh, days as a worship leader, looking at each word and then looking at the ceiling and asking, but what does it mean? What does that look like? Why is the Bible always talking in this metaphoric code? And then around age 23, I was, I was able to figure it out because someone gave me this secret strategy to understand the Bible. It's literally changed my life. You guys interested in hearing the strategy that will change your life? So as a firm follower of my generation's desire for instant gratification, I used to use this method in in which the idea was to read a verse and go stare at the ceiling, pound the walls in anger until God gave you an interpretation. It rarely worked. Rarely, rarely worked. Pretty frustrating. You know what pretty much always helps in understanding the Bible? Ready for it? Reading more of the Bible. Crazy, right? Uh, it's completely barbaric strategy. Probably won't last long. Completely dismisses technological advancement. But it seems to be working for me. You see, for years I would read Romans 12, 1 through 2, and say, that's a great image, Paul. But what does it look like to be a living sacrifice? Great illusion. I get that you're making a reference to the Old Testament, which is poetic and all. But what am I supposed to do? Where's the application? Well, if I would have continued reading in verse 3 and verse 4, then something crazy like read the entire chapter, I would have seen that Paul gives a full bullet-by-bullet list of what it looks like to be a true Christian and serve one another. I don't know if I would have turned the page or for those of you on your iPhones, press next chapter. I would have seen another full list in-depth, day-by-day situations in which the true act of spiritual worship should reveal itself. So if you walk away from the service, you're like, well, that was, that was a solid biblical argument, but what does this mean for my life? What am I actually supposed to do on a daily basis? I would encourage you to spend several hours this week going through Romans 12, Romans 13, Romans 14, Romans 15. See, in Romans, Paul's argument is the same That's pretty much every argument in the Bible. It's the same structure that has followed in the plan of salvation, same structure we discuss in redemptive history. Paul spends chapters 1 through 11 of Romans developing his argument that there's an all-powerful creator God who deserves worship and praise from all humans, yet all humans naturally refuse to praise him. We naturally refuse to worship him. In fact, it is impossible to please God. It tells us in Romans 8. Because as a human, we are incapable of doing good. And the only way to do good, to be pleasing to him, is if God gives us grace to repent, to believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation. 
And some of you, as you're listening to this today, you're probably thinking, this, this thesis is kind of sporadic. I mean, I thought this was about worship. Why do you keep, do you keep talking about salvation and doing good works and missions around the world? Well, what is the purpose of salvation? Why are we called to do good works in front of non-believers? What is the drive behind missions? Our key point, the answer to all of life's questions is the God of the universe be worshipped for what he's done, what he will do today, what he will do in the future. So let me show you how these topics flow in the book of Romans. Paul details in Romans 1 through 11, as we said, the plan of salvation within redemptive history. And then once he's made clear how to become saved, he gives us practical application of what it looks like to live once you are saved. So as we said, the practical application of Paul's letter or sermon to the Romans is four chapters long, all the way from chapter 12 to 14 and then 15. And that's where the whole thing just starts to make so much sense. It gets silly. But remember, for years, I didn't know that chapter 15 existed. So I never really saw how Romans 12, 1 through 2 made any sense in real life. Go with me to Romans 15, 4 through 6. Uh, we'll start at where he's still doing some of the, the practical application stuff. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. So Paul just wrapped up his love, the church like it's your family speech. And it turns out the whole reason we do that, the whole reason we love the church like family is to get us to here. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now stay with me. I'm going to make the claim that this is the manifestation of the culmination of the gospel, of the plan of salvation, of redemptive history. This is beautiful worship in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The plan has never been about sacrificing bulls or lambs or barbecuing carne asada for God. I'm sure it smelled great, but the physical aroma is just an ancillary beauty of what was really on display. But let's wait a second here. A danger of this flow of argument, if you may be going this direction, is you think, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's not about sacrificing anymore. It's about singing. In our contemporary context, this is just as dangerous. It's not about the drums or the guitars or the piano or the sound system, the perfectly sloped sanctuary, or smiling at one another during the greeting time, or listening to a 40-minute lecture in hopes of retaining a few pointers so that you can add to your repertoire of knowing what is right or doing what is right. One of the huge problems we have with separating our, our thought of the Bible into Old Testament and New Testament or Old Covenant and New Covenant is so we can think that all that has changed is the list of requirements to please God and to worship God. In our heads we think, excellent, I don't have to worry about sacrificing a bull because it's a little bit weird and it's way too unsanitary for my superficially clean 21st century mindset. 
So instead of doing that stuff, today God just wants me to come and sing to him for 20 minutes. They had their sacrifices once in a while to apologize for their sin. They had their ceremonial washings to be clean before God. And I have my 90 minutes walking through that magical door where if I can just sit here long enough during the sermon and raise my hands a few times during the music, I too can be clean before God. And if I really want to get God off my back about my sin, I'll go up on stage, throw a guitar around my my waist, put my hands in the air, close my eyes when I sing, let my wife pick my clothes so I don't look like a complete redneck that I am. Am I not allowed to say that? I don't know. It's it's me, right? I I can insult myself. We have the tendency to think that this is a list. We can easily fall in this mindset that all God has ever wanted is ceremony. And all these things are great byproducts of the Christian life. Singing, expressing your emotions during music, feverishly taking notes during a sermon. But by themselves, these things do not get us right before God. These are no more helpful than sacrificing a bull. And this leads us to what is probably the most missed point in our culture's perception of what goes on in a typical church building when music is being played, melody is flowing from the mouths of those within the building. What is beautiful is not the singing. Here's our key point. What makes worship pleasing to God is who is singing. There's a central component to worship within the Old and New Covenant. And without it, our greatest, most selfless actions are a pile of garbage. So our main thesis today, the standard for worship is monstrous and maybe even larger than we think. You see, the passages we've looked at in which God says, I want it all. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want your mind. You must give me everything in order to be saved, in order to please me in worship. These passages can be a little bit deceiving if we don't look at the context of the Bible. Because like a blemished sheep is unacceptable. Your life, even if somehow you were able to give it all to God, your life is tainted. Your life is unclean. Your life is sinful. Your life is unacceptable. The key point, the standard for worship is larger than your life. The standard for worship is a perfect life. So obviously, this is the flow of where our argument has been going. The standard for worship is Jesus Christ's life. That central foundational component to worship is hope and faith in Jesus Christ. The redeemed of the Old Testament look forward to it and hope, and the redeemed of the New Covenant look back to Jesus' death and resurrection. And while we hang on this full picture of the Old and the New Covenant, we've just analyzed the language of, the Paul, of Paul in Romans 12 begins to make sense. That through Jesus' perfect life and his holy and acceptable death on the cross, his sacrificing of his life on earth, his, rex- his resurrection, and his capturing of my heart, of your heart, of your heart, so that we can now say, it is not I who live, but Christ lives within me. 
Now we then can come together and daily be presented as holy, as blameless, as acceptable before God. And now that we've been made holy, we can in powerful harmony give God the glory, the perfect holy glory that he deserves. That is the context you've been saved to. You've been rescued to this group of people, to the global and historic millions and millions known as the body of Christ to bring praise to the creator God who is worthy. Here's the main thrust of what we've been building to today. It's not the simultaneous singing that glorifies God. Our glorious final answer to what does worship look like is not, well, it's when a lot of people sing. God likes a lot of voices. What pleases God is the massive multitude of individuals whose lives have been transformed into the image of his son. So that it isn't really a choir of flesh-ridden humans. It is a choir of righteous and perfect mirrors of God's glory. I want to thank all the, the ISI group who join us weekly in our Sunday morning service. Because with you here, we can look beyond what can sometimes become a little riverside bubble. And you help us to see that God is transforming people all over the globe into mirrors of Christ. I mean, can you picture it? Take the small glimpse, the small sample that we get on Sunday morning and magnify it across the globe. Think of the amazing miracles of reconciliation that God is bringing about amongst believers in war-torn Africa. Think of the secret house groups of Christians that meet in Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Afghanistan. Think of what God has slowly been building to in Asia over the last 2,000 years, so that in the last 100 years, we have seen an explosion of Chinese who are choosing Jesus over family allegiance. South Koreans who are so on fire for God that they're boldly bringing the gospel to North Korea, a country that causes many around the world to tremble and fear. And after you have all of the globe in your mind's eye, now include the span across history, millions and millions of Christ reflectors joining in unison to sing thunderous praise to God. That is a glorious sound. That is glorious worship. And when Christ is seen in our lives, then we fulfill the monstrous standard for worship. That is what God wants. That is what he expects. And that is what we should bring to him daily. Pray with me. God, we pray that you would humble us, that you would show us our inadequacies so that we can no longer lie to ourselves and think that we can come before you on our own merit, on our own deeds, our own reputation. Humble us so that we would repent, that we would repent and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that we would see him as the only perfect living sacrifice on our behalf. What an amazing thought, God, that, that you could look at us and see Christ's perfection. It is in Christ's name that we worship 
It is in Christ's name that we are saved. It's in Christ's name that we, we come to you and we pray. Amen. I hope today you've been reminded of the standard for worship. That nothing, nothing you could do by your own power could ever please God. You need Jesus. You need God to see Christ's perfection when he looks at you. I hope that you'll spend some time in Romans 12 through 15 this week so that you will daily live out Christ's character. And when you do that, and then we gather together after a week of reflecting Christ, and then we come before him and we bring praise before a perfect God, that praise will also be perfect and beautiful and glorifying to God. Why don't you stand with us and sing through the progression of praise. This is the the progression we see in redemptive history, the progression we see in the plan of salvation, that first we come to Christ, we come to God as the creator and we adore him for being a creator. Then we confess our sinful nature and then in awe of Christ sacrificing himself, his life, we can then adore God, not just as a creator, but as father. Sing with us.